0: to the Pharmacy Podcast Network.
1: In a world where one-size-fits-all medications dominate the pharmaceutical industry, Precision Medicine brings a ray of hope for those seeking customized healthcare. Pharmacists have a unique opportunity to help people in need of specialized testing to ensure medications work as intended. Welcome to PGX for Pharmacists, pharmacists. where we unravel the wonders of precision medicine and its potential to revolutionize the way we approach pharmacy care. Get ready to uncover the secrets behind pharmacogenomics and how it's transforming lives one genome at a time.
0: My name is Sarami, your host to PGX for Pharmacists podcast on the largest pharmacy podcast in the nation and one of the top 20 podcasts in genomics globally. If you're new to the podcast, well, hopefully you're not. I'm a pharmacogenomics medical science liaison and a mentor to pharmacists. Uh, connect with me on LinkedIn and let's get the conversation going. I want to hear from you and how you're impacting patients, payers, or clinicians, and what you have learned throughout your journey that you want to share with me. So being a PGX expert and advocate requires going beyond a certificate and reading an actionable genetics report. It's about knowing how to connect with a patient, understand their health history, and be able to use the genetics data and research out there to help guide providers to make better treatment outcomes. So I'm super excited to welcome our incredible lineup of guests who are eager to share their expertise and their unique perspective. So get ready for an unforgettable podcast experience with this PGX roundtable we have today. i love for each of our esteemed guests to have a moment to introduce themselves, share a bit about their background, expertise, and what brings them on this conversation today. So Christina... I want to start with you. Um, I know you have faced many obstacles and um, traumatic events in your life, and I'm grateful to you um, and everyone else, of course. That and the courage you have to continuously share your story in the hopes that bringing more awareness. So, tell us a little about uh, a little bit about Christina
2: and why uh, you are such a believer in pharmacogenomics. Okay, um, thank you so much again, Benaz, for um, for having me and the rest of the girls here today um, and sharing our stories. So um, I'm a mother of three and a wife, um, and I have zero background in the healthcare world. Um, I um, My mother was diagnosed with stage four pancreatic cancer, and um, it was a huge shock to myself and my family. Um, and, uh, I basically, you know, wanted to do everything that I could, um, to, to help her and, um, her situation. And unfortunately, you know, it took a, it took a bad turn. So I'm here today because I want to share her story because it's unique. Um, and I would encourage the, you know, the rest of the world to, to hear and understand and, and know that if they have a. family member or a loved one going through something that there's um there's other other sources and things that they can look into. Well,
0: well thank you, Christina. I appreciate that. And then we also have uh, amazing Karen. I know I remember meeting you, Karen, at Precision Medicine World Conference or PMWC this past January. I think it was. It feels like such a long time ago, and you were up on that stage sharing your story and how you um and how you conveyed that message captured me. And I knew I had to uh, grab you right off the stage and so and talk to you about that. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your non for profit?
3: Yes, thank you. Anaz, and thank you for um, introducing yourself to me after that Precision Medicine World Conference and the connections that I have made. Um, sadly, it's great, but also sad to have met Christina because that means that we have a common connection, that we have a loved one who died from um, their chemo and not necessarily from their cancer So I have become a um, passionate patient advocate since 2014 when I lost my mom to her chemo, 5-F-U, not her cancer. She had an unknown DPD deficiency, which they could have tested her for before her chemotherapy and adjusted her dose or found a different chemotherapy. I am a patient representative to a few groups working to make DPYD genetic testing part of standard of care in the United States, as it is in most of Europe. I'm also a founding member of AUDIT, which stands for Advocates for Universal DPD DPYD Testing. It is our hope that we will um, convince the NCCN, the FDA, and um, other institutions that it's time to start testing patients before administering 5FU or Cape sidebaine fluorouracil. Well, I appreciate you um, you doing that. I think we
0: might have lost Karen a little bit, but we'll come back. Uh, so Joanne, um, you and Karen are both co founders of the non profit she was talking about, AUDT, uh, but also an advocate for other foundations. So tell us how you got involved and what, what that means to
4: you.
5: Okay. Well, my story mirrors pretty much Karen's as well in terms of my husband's experience. He was diagnosed with stage one cholangiocarcinoma, which is bile duct cancer. He had a whipple surgery, which is quite expensive, and uh, it's about a 12-hour long surgery. He was declared cancer-free when the surgery was over because it was a perfect outcome but they started him on capecitabine just as adjuvant chemotherapy and he started having some toxic reactions and almost immediately which were far greater than we ever were led to believe would happen and so um, over a period of just a couple of weeks he was hospitalized and never left the hospital. He died about three weeks after we uh, admitted him for the first emergency room visit. So I found out pretty quickly that it was DPD enzyme deficiency, although the doctors were reluctant to talk about it. Uh, They denied that that's what he died of. But after his death, I immediately got into both research on what this was all about. How did this happen? How could it happen at a major cancer treatment center, Oregon Health and Science University Hospital in Portland? Um, At the same time, I was also encouraged to file a lawsuit. um, And I did so, um, which was finally settled last year. Um, I could probably go into more detail after we finish all the other introductions. My my introduction turned out to be a little deeper than I was planning to go into immediately. But um, so that is how I got involved in DPD. That's how I got involved with the audit um, advocacy group as one of the founding members. So um, I'll be happy to talk later about a little more detail about the lawsuit and what Audit is actually accomplishing. Yes,
0: please. And I appreciate you doing that. Yes, we would want you to share all that. And then, uh, Christine, uh, you're doing so much in this space as well, including bringing awareness to adding diversity and inclusion in clinical research and just um, stimulation provo- provoking great discussion. So I'll let you introduce yourself because I think I'd be a long introduction if I do it. Okay.
1: <laughs> well, I'll try to keep it short. Um, I'm a little bit different than all our other panelists because I am the individual that did the pharmacogenomic testing and found uh, multiple different things um, in them. So just for a short introduction, I am a rare undiagnosed patient still. We've spent my lifetime treating symptoms instead of the underlying cause. Um, we're just not there yet. Um But in that process, um, I have all of my life experienced bad things from medications from the time I was a child. We've stopped medications. We've tried new ones. We've gone through the trial and error my entire life. Um, The reason why I'm in pharmacogenomics was I was part of a research project at Stanford, the Human-Wide Project, which actually gave pharmacogenomics access to us. It was from that test that I discovered that Out of all of the compounds they tested, more than half of them, I I metabolized differently. And so I have damage from medications. I have three joint replacements. I have toxic encephalopathy, which is brain damage. um, And I've lost my night vision all from standard of care for one of my conditions, although I'm not even sure. That's one of my major conditions, right? Right. Um, so for me, after the pharmacogenomics test, we were able to change my care and treatment. We put some allergies into my charts for drugs that I should not be taken or taking. We've uh, we adjusted some of the other medications, and and we put some some on the list of never to take again. Um, so it's really helped myself in determining that care and and even the quality of life. The drugs that I'm taking now, not all of them, you know, pass through that that testing. But a lot of them, we have been able to make different decisions on my care, and so I think it's really important. Um, I testified in front of the California uh, State Health Committee. I can think for a second um, around access to pharmacogenomics for our Medi-Cal patients because I do see the cost savings for having this test done early. I'm dealing with damage that will be a lifetime of damage that we will continually have to pay out for and treat. And we could avoid these things with simple tests. So... I'll stop there.
0: and that, No, I and... appreciate it. No, and I think um, I wanted to talk about, uh, this is one of the things we had discussed uh, before where the allergy uh, section is hosted in, in your chart and how um, you know you were talking about a situation where it was hard to kind of locate that. And, and we'll talk about that. I'm, I'm excited about that. And then last but not least, we have Becky Winslow, a pharmacist who is also a subject matter expert on pharmacogenomics to bring her insight as well. So thanks for coming on uh, the the show podcast um Becky sorry and sharing your perspective as a pharmacist um so thank you Becky
4: thank you for having me and I look forward to contributing to the conversation um as it works for us
0: <laughs> yes thank you um so this goes for everyone but I think maybe Christina or Karen um tell us uh if maybe our audiences are not too familiar with DPYD Uh, Or maybe, Karen, if you want to educate us on that, what it is and why it's important and why we should care.
3: Sure. DPYD is a gene that we all have, and it tells the body to make the DPD enzyme, which stands for dihydropyrimidine dehydrogenase. So individuals need this enzyme to process fluoropyrimidine chemotherapy which would be uh, 5-FU, fluorouracil, or capecitabine. And these are commonly referred to in chemo cocktails as Fulfox, Fulfiri, Fulfirinox, pox. So this is a wonderful um, chemotherapy that got FDA approval in 19... Well, the, at least the 5-U portion in 1962. It's a mainstay cancer drug in fighting solid tumors works wonders for many, but for the people that it doesn't work wonders for, it can, it's severe suffering and death. So um, the National Libraries of Medicine says anywhere between three to 7% of the US population has a DPYD variant, which means you either need to have a reduced dose or, or find a different chemotherapy. Um, depending on which variant you have, in January of this year, in the Journal of Clinical Oncology, there was an article, or a study that came out that said nine percent of the U.S. population is at risk for this DPD deficiency. So when you when you have this deficiency, it the um, the cancer chemotherapy kills all. Ter- kills all of these fast turnover cells. And once you have it in your body, if you can't excrete it because you don't have this enzyme, then it ends up doing more harm than than good. And it is a horrific suffering for patients. Well, thank you, Karen. I think, uh,
0: Christina, um, you also were talking about you don't come from a clinical background, but I think you're pretty much an expert in that as well. Now, after all your research, you had to go through with your mom for your mom. Um, and so you want to tell us a, a little bit about that and, um, you know, what what you try to do, because there is an option if you are deficient and then and you can still kind of you have that window of opportunity. So you want to walk us through that.
2: I mean, I noticed as soon as my mother was administered the chemotherapy, um, like Joanne had mentioned with her husband and obviously Karen as well, and I'm so sorry, ladies, that you went through the very similar situation that I did, that my mother did. Um, She she completely was like violently ill. And I took her back and forth to the hospital within that, just, just within a day or two, I was going back and forth um, multiple times and they would just give her, you know, hydration and just say, this is all normal. And that by the weekend, you know, her, her chemo was given on a Monday. And by like Friday, they were telling me she would take a turn by Sunday and be better. So by day seven, I mean, she was declining so, so much. I mean, and again, violent, violently ill. Um, And I ended up taking her, you know, she was being seen at the Westchester Sloan Center, um, Memorial Sloan and I, Sloan Kettering. And I ended up taking her into the city where her actual doctor um, was um, practicing. So I went directly there. We waited hours in the emergency room there. um, And then they finally admitted her and I had to unfortunately leave her. I have three children at home and I had to leave that night. But by the time I got back there, I didn't get back there the following day, which would have been a Monday. By Tuesday morning, when I left her, she was walking and she had a full head of hair. And by that Tuesday morning, she was, she lost all of her hair and she honestly, they didn't think that she was going to even make it through that night. Um... So I I was in complete shock um, by her presence, like you know how she the she was completely not her, you know, and it was it was a huge shock um, seeing how I left her on that Sunday night there. Um, and a very long story short, um, which I'm sure we can all conversate about, um, you know, I was doing tirelessly researching, and I had mentioned DPD because um, I had read about the enzyme deficiency. Um, I had mentioned that to the doctors that Sunday night. There was no mention of it on that Tuesday. And that Tuesday morning, I demanded to speak to someone else. And then they finally said that they were going to go ahead and do the test and send it to, um, oh God, the name is slipping my mind, but everybody knows it. the center, they they sent it to one of the centers. Um, And it took 10 days to get her, to get, a response back uh, the results. Um, turns out, yes, she was partially deficient. However, before those ten days were up, by I think maybe day nine from the chemotherapy being administered, um, you know, I was working tirelessly to find something, some answers. So I was, you know, chatting back and forth, messaging through the through the app, you know, with the doctor saying, you know, she needs selenium to bring her neutrophils up. And I was checking her blood count every morning um, and going there every day. And I I found um, a website, strongmom.com, where it was a gentleman who lost his wife. Um, and it was from this. And uh, they used a drug called Vistagard to reverse the, the um, toxicity. But the Vistagard drug is supposed—it's an antidote, so it's supposed to be delivered within three days of the chemo being administered. And of course, we were outside of that time frame, so the doctors were hesitant to order it because of the efficacy issues. And I just had to really advocate for her and demand it. Um, and by the next morning, they had it overnighted, and the Vistagard drug was provided to us. And that very next morning, she was putting a fork to her to her. Mouth, so I'll pause here and let more discussion happen. But basically, there's if if this if this blood test can be just a simple blood test, which is required in Europe and you know and other countries before this drug is administered, it would save lives.
0: Yeah, it it took what like nine? How many days to get the result back? That's crazy to
2: get the actual results back. It took ten days. But what is it? The Mayo Clinic. I couldn't, I couldn't think of it. Um, so it, the Mayo Clinic or whatever. Um, they um, It took that long, but so they were actually giving the Vistaguard prior to getting the results because I demanded it. And they weren't even giving it to her right either. So that's another thing I had to deal with with the pharmacist because they were not giving her the proper dose even then. Wow. So um, it's just reminds you of how it really heavily involved you really need to be. And, you know, I'm not saying, you know, you can't trust doctors or anyone like that in the medical field. I'm not saying that whatsoever. However, you do need to research, you know, as much as you possibly can ask questions, um, get second opinions and just advocate for yourself, you know, because I mean, some of the things that I, you know, they were, they were calling me a doctor. And that was very unsettling to hear, you know. <laughs> They're like, oh yeah, <laughs> you guys are trying to treat my mom here. And uh yeah, it's it's very unfortunate. But if it's something that can be avoided, why 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 are we why why would we not? Yeah.
0: Great, great question. Yes. Um Joanna, you wanted to um I, I'm I'm sorry, Joanne, you wanted to talk about something further that um I think
5: you were trying to do your short introduction there. Well, I want to pick up on the VistoGuard issue. Okay. Um, yes. So David's mucositis was so extreme that he could hardly swallow. And at OHSU as well, they decided that, yes, this could be a DPD enzyme deficiency issue, but we need to get the test results back before we order the VistoGuard. So they had that reversed someone finally stepped up and said uh, okay let's let's get it delivered as soon as we can and it was seven days beyond the close of that window so it needs to be it comes in crystal form and it needs to be crushed and um, mixed with a food-based thickener and um, inserted through a, you know, an, an NG tube. Not one of the nurses who was administering the Visto guard knew how to do it. No one asked the pharmacy. Um, they didn't do any research. They didn't try to find out what the instructions actually were. So it was a bit of a waste. He did have it. He was given every dose, but, but it was a waste because it didn't it wasn't effective at all. Um, anyway, that was just one issue that I wanted to bring up. I think Vistogard is certainly effective, 98% yeah. effective, if it's given within 96 hours of the last dose. Yeah, 96
3: Six hours. hours, right. Mm-hmm. Right. And and the problem with that 96-hour window is when, like, when we took my mom to the hospital, the emergency room staff is not educated to, I mean, the toxicity from this chemotherapy um, when it's so crucial, like DPD deficiency, it looks a lot like severe suffering, severe toxicity, right? Not that it can be life altering and the, the window that you have um, to treat it in. And I think they thought that this VistaGuard would be, you know, the, the golden ticket. But there's so many nuances. It, it has to be the time frame. It's expensive hospitals won't staff it or stock it because it has a a one year shelf life. So once they decide they need it, there's another 24 hours when they have to get it overnighted. And then um, as Joanne and Christina said, administering it takes also like, it's so new. I don't know if they're trained on that. So um, yeah, they're not. I had to, I had to, I was going in every
2: morning to give it to her after that first day, I was like losing my mind because they weren't doing it right. And so I would just, and she did have the severe mucositis as well. And she could absolutely, she was terrible. Um, So they were thinking about doing the NG2, but since that was also dangerous, we did end up, you know, I was, I mixed it with, I think it was applesauce or whatever it might've been. Um, And I just did whatever I can just to get a little bit in there. Um, But yeah, I mean, She went from they thought she was going to not make it through the night to at least being able to even get up and go to the bathroom, which was really huge, huge, huge steps. So I do believe that it did have some sort of effect, you know, just from the reversal that I saw. Um, But again, it was it wasn't even given properly, you know, but whatever dose we did get in there, we did.
5: Oh, and then there's another issue that I want to bring up as well, and that has to do with the the training that the nurses get or don't receive for um, the triage, for the phone calls that come in from the patients or the caregivers. Um, they don't ask the right questions. Um, I was told that I just needed to treat him at home for this huge list of toxic reactions that he was going to have, even though I said he's sick enough to come into the hospital. They assured me that he wasn't, that I should just go to the local pharmacy. So nurses, the triage nurses really do need to ask the right questions. You know, how many times has he vomited or had diarrhea? Maybe you do need to take him off of the medication immediately. Maybe you do need to bring him in. So we lost about three good days at least, um, in in discovering what was really going on. And then of course the ER staff is not necessarily up to date on the chemo and what to watch for. They're simply treating each individual symptom rather than this toxic breakdown of this, you know, this systemic breakdown caused by all of these symptoms. So again, it's much easier just to do the genetic testing before they start them on the chemo because there are too many areas in which The dominoes are going to fall and the patient is not going to survive. So testing is is where we start.
1: And can I comment on that as well? Because you guys Um, are mentioning that, that before the treatment, you need to start that. But for me personally, I think it's way before you're even diagnosed with a condition where this test needs to happen. So for me personally, the damage that I experienced was from standard of care drugs. One of them was steroids, right? Prednisone. One of them was methotrexate, one of them was Plaquenil. These are drugs that we prescribe to people all the time. And the number of people that I talk to that have been on methotrexate and experience brain fog, but they're being told that that's normal. I don't know that it's normal in all of these people, right? We write these things off as symptoms and as part of the disease and we're supposed to live with it. But I've had more damage happen from the medications than from my actual conditions. And those are things we have to think about. I have joint replacements because steroids are prednisone eight through my bones and I have avascular necrosis. If we can stop that, we use steroids to treat asthma in kids. We should know before we start taking these things what the effects are. And right now we deal with step therapy where we have a you have to try all these drugs first before we give you what you and your doctor agreed on. If we have these tests, we can save costs there too. So my joint replacements, it was a one-time, it's not a one-time joint replacement. After 10 years, all three of my joints have to be replaced again. The cognitive behavioral therapy that I have to go through for the brain damage is going to continue the rest of my life. And we're going to keep paying for these. But if we pay for this test early, before people are even diagnosed with a condition We can save on that. And then the other drug that we haven't even touched on yet, the CYP compounds, I don't metabolize pain meds in the same way that other people do. And so when I got dismissed, I got, you know, people think I'm a drug seeker because I'm seeking the one drug that is effective for me. But because there's no knowledge of pharmacogenomics and how different opioids can affect different people, Those are the conversations we're not having. And so for me, I mean, I think way before a diagnosis, it should be done for everybody. And and any treatment that you're getting, we're giving our kids drugs. I've been on drugs since I was a kid. I'm dealing with these long term effects that nobody's coming back and making things better for us. So how do we make it better for the people to come after us? And I'll leave it there. (laughs)
2: I no. totally have to echo that. My goodness. I'm sorry, now Go
1: ahead. No, no, go ahead. And I
2: was
0: gonna have Christine um talk about the uh where where that's whole. So you have had your genetic testing now for uh, a bit, right? A while ago. Mm-hmm. So if you need to um bring it up and mention it to a provider at this point, where do they have to t- see it in your chart? Cause it's far back, right? So I think we talked about that and
1: Oh, yeah. So right now, we don't, it's not in Epic right now. Um, My pharmacogenomics are in a note dated back into February of 2019. And so I direct physicians to go there. It's not in a language that most of my physicians can even understand. And Banaz, I just called you a few weeks ago, because one Mm -hmm. of my doctors wanted to prescribe a new medication. And I told him, can you please Look at my PGX results and, and align that. He didn't know how to do that. He read through it. He didn't know how the drug that he was going with to give me was going to affect me. So he said, if you have friends, find out from them, and then you make the decision on what drug. But that research had to be done through me, right? And. And so, and not even to have access to that and not even to have every physician aware of pharmacogenomics, right? I also had an incident in the hospital where this doctor wanted to know where I got this test and who performed it. And he had never heard of it before, right? So I think there's a lot there that that needs to be thought about. It's not in the EPIC system. It's You know, it's not known by all of these doctors. And when I'm going in to ask for a specific medication, especially an opioid that is way more powerful than most people will have, they have to understand why I'm asking for that as well.
0: Right. Yeah, that that's that's the problem. Yeah, you know, I don't I didn't think about it till you told me uh, a while back. You know, where where is that information hosted? Even if people do know how to read it and understand it, how do they find it? Because you, you're not going to go and search through all notes, right? So there has to be a better system. than I don't I don't know if I have the answer, Um, but yeah, it's I'm sure someone out there someone does. Has, so. Yeah, someone out there <laughs> has the, the answer. Universe. <laughs> right. But I mean, what about the reimbursement piece of all of this? Are Are you familiar with, uh, Christine,
1: the reimbursement piece of the test? As far as the PGX? Yes. Or and not so much. What I can speak on really is is just the benefit to the payers in, in paying early, right? To look at these case studies of people who have damage from medications, right? And And we're treating symptoms instead of treating their underlying causes. And so for me, on that side of it, for the reimbursement side, I mean, really all I can speak to is is the benefits of having this done early, right? Because it is, I think it's something that if we were to do, you know, steroids, like I said, a lot of these simple drugs that we are giving people, even just the pain meds themselves, we're giving people pain meds that may not take them out of pain. Yeah.
2: And yeah, that's could. the problem. And then they call them like the drug addict, or they're but they're in right? pain, they're really not, you know. And imagine what this could do for the opioid epidemic and just just all so many other drugs, Wait, too, that to get people become addicted people- to. And yeah. and they say they're in pain. And these doctors do do come back to them and they say they're just, you know, they'll tell their secretaries, even. My mother was one of them, a secretary, and she would say her doctor would tell her no. Oh, that one called. Nope. Tell Nope. Nope. Can't, can't see them, you know, no, nope, no more pills, no more pills. But if we wow. just did this one test and that, and you know, it makes me nervous too. When you say about this, the steroids, you know, my two of my sons have really bad asthma and allergies and they've been on so many rounds of steroids. Um, and it really makes me nervous now thinking about it because, I know what it is for us adults, right? To have the, the benefits for this genetic testing, but when, why wouldn't we want our children to have it?
5: Okay. If genetic the, testing the, could be, excuse not, me, if, it, genet, if genetic testing could be done at birth, <laughs> that would that would be ideal, wouldn't it? It's gonna be very difficult to get most people on the bandwagon and most doctors on the bandwagon for it. It's such a new concept, I think.
3: And right now the burden is on the patient to come in knowing that they have these variants, right? And for instance, I, when my mom was sick and she, they didn't have time to test her for DPT deficiency when she was in the hospital, we got her blood tested the day after she died. And unfortunately um, there are differences in labs too, because the lab who tested her blood LabCorp only tested for one variant at the time, but I'm happy to say that they now test for at least five variants. So it would have caught my mom's variant had she been tested prior to her treatment. Um, And so I um, asked my primary care doctor in the state of Washington to give, I wanted to know have this DPYD gene test, So they drew my blood and sent it off, which I didn't know. They sent off their DPYD gene panel to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester and sent it back. It was back in my, um, my chart, which I think is epic, um, in five days. So I knew about that and, you know, it took like three days for my primary care doctor because I wasn't a patient that was experiencing cancer and needed, you know, they would have called right away, I think. Um, and I had United Healthcare at the time who paid hundred percent of that test. So that was that was huge. And um, you know, this was this whole issue with my mom was the first time I'd ever heard the term pharmacogenomics or PGX. And so in sharing with a friend who's an OBGYn, she's like, oh, you should you should um, get a direct to consumer test. So I did. Which confirmed my DPYD variant, the same one that the Mayo Clinic, but it also found other things that I metabolized differently. And I was I'm just kind of dumbfounded and kind of like Christine, that whole SIP, SIP2D6, cyp 2 c 19 Um, phrases that I'd never heard before I'm like I am very aware and the way university or my hospital in Washington has it in there because they do not have a genomics model in their um, patient electronic health record it's put in as an allergy and it's um, there's so there's a, a huge education piece about DPE D deficiency and pharmacogenomics that needs to happen. And um, I know I've been talking to oncologists, but also I've been talking to pharmacists and hoping that their schools of pharmacies at all of these medical institutions are teaching about it. Because it seems to me that there are so many pharmacists that know about this, even sometimes more so than um, primary care doctors or oncologists. Yeah.
0: Well, well, Becky, um, Becky's a pharmacist by trade. So what are your thoughts on on that? And also testing at birth that Joanne was talking about? And maybe are you, if you're familiar with the reimbursement piece of that test?
4: Um, I mean, testing at birth would be preemptive testing and in the ideal world, that's what would happen. Um, Unfortunately, on the market access and payer reimbursement side of the house, we don't live in an ideal world. Um, And payers' arguments about preemptive testing is that um, for the majority of Americans, their health care insurance is tied to their employer, and they typically only remain in a health plan for approximately 18 months. So that payer only has 18 months to capture the return on their investment into genetic testing um, because I think we can all agree that unfortunately healthcare insurance is also a business and so that's their perspective is that they want to see that return on their investment within 18 months. So as Karen stated, uh, you know, patient-driven testing, and and luckily, fortunately, the cost of testing has come down um, from where it was, say, decades ago, so that it is more affordable, so that more patients can afford testing. Um, and you know, that's that's the payer perspective. Um, you know, <laughs> that's their perspective. That's what I can add to the conversation. Um, As far as, for example, if you have a family member who has, uh, for example, um, DPYD variants um, that affect their metabolism of chemo drugs, uh, then they do familial testing. For example, a payer would see that as uh, medically necessary typically because another family member. Um, has that variant or experienced adverse events related to the drug because of the variant. So uh, they would view that as more medically necessary in the preemptive state. So, you know, before you actually need the medication. Um, So that's just some insight from their perspective. And then for pharmacogenomics in general, not necessarily DPYD, Most payers don't um, find medically necessary multi-gene panels because um, it's kind of like I equate it to just imagine if you went to your prescriber and your prescriber prescribed 10 different medications for conditions that you don't have already. So let's just say you don't have hypertension, but they prescribe you one just in case. Or maybe you don't have diabetes and they prescribe you a medication to lower your blood sugar, but that's just in case you need it. Um, Payers aren't going to pay for those medications, and and they feel the same way about genetic testing um, in that they want you to have either your doctor to be considering prescribing the medication or for you to have already been prescribed the medication and either had um, a negative outcome or non-therapeutic outcome. Um, That's
0: that's a great point, Becky. you say that. Then mm-hmm. it got me thinking about all this testing I have to do, and I won't give my age up. At a certain age, you got to do, mm-hmm.
3: um, you
0: know, mammogram. At a certain age, you got to do colonoscopy. Right. So those are our preventative because they mm-hmm. see. I see that as two reasons, and I'm not an expert in the insurance perspective, but they see that there is, um, you know, cost right. benefit to doing it early and preventative. Mm-hmm. And they, there's also maybe guidelines that recommend it, and it's in there. And I don't think we have that with PGX, no, right? We don't.
4: That's part of the problem is that, you know, pharmacogenomics is not dictated into any guidelines. Um, so like, uh, I believe Karen mentioned earlier, NCCN guidelines. Um, for example, they don't even uh, recommend CYP2C19 testing for clopidogrel. They don't think that's medically necessary. So many payers subscribe to those national guidelines. Um, and until those national guidelines are changed, payers' perspectives um, may not be as easily changed. But you know, fortunately, I've I've had the opportunity to uh, focus on this and and try to work on market access and payer reimbursement for pharmacogenomics. Um, and you know, the one thing that we're lacking that we could really use more of is, the clinical utility of the testing, what type of financial and clinical outcomes are achieved from these tests, because that's what payers want to see, is the clinical utility.
1: And Can I ask too, are we, have we done any studies on like These average drugs and long term, right? We know that steroid causes psychosis and you know joint or bone damage and all of these things. But these are drugs that are prescribed standard to so many people. Are we looking at those standard care of drugs to see how we may have damaged people? Are we avoiding that topic altogether on that (laughs) payer side? you know, because like you said, Christina, your kid, your, your two kids are on steroids, mm-hmm. right? How many people have kids who are on steroids, not just for asthma, but maybe some other condition? So, you know, I'm wondering on the cost, if we're looking at long-term damage on some of these normal standard of care drugs. Right.
4: I think it, again, goes back to payers looking at how long-term is long-term for them. Because if 18 months is their long-term, then you may not see those adverse events um, reach their full potential within 18 months. So that's not their interest in preventing those costs. Now, Medicare populations, patients stay in those in that program for many more years, they may have a different administrator for the plan, but they're in Medicare. So Medicare tends to favor uh, longer term goals, such as what you're referring to, you know, where the long term is longer than 18 months. (laughs)
1: Um, and just for a side note, I'm on Medicare myself, so I am a Medicare patient, and I have I have actually avoided taking jobs because Medicare gives me better coverage yeah. than most other private insurance plan, and when you get to be complicated, you've, you've got to find options, so yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, that that area of Medicare, looking into that, I do think that we should look at it for bigger populations and how do we how do we restructure these things as we move forward.
3: I have two thoughts on that. So the uh, American Cancer Society Cancer Action Network, at the end of June, um, where I was fortunate to speak, they um, revealed nine. Uh, pharmacogenomics recommendations. Now, this Mm -hmm. was specifically for cancer patients, but I have to think that it's going to ripple into primary care as well. Um, And then the second aspect is um, last year, you're probably familiar with the right right drug or the right act, which was the right drug for the right, at the right dose, the right patient. And I'm yeah. hopeful that that's going to be reintroduced again in a smaller, um, a scaled back version or like cut it into two pieces so that they can focus on the pharmacogenomics aspect. And that really is so key for the payers um, and for Medicare because um, for instance, like you were what you were saying, Christine, and in my mom's case, if they knew about this in the beginning, They would have tried a different medicine for her because she could not process this chemotherapy, but instead her Medicare paid for her treatment. And then for her two weeks in the hospital where she had round the clock care and like five or six specialists, which we know we've seen hospital bills, that is not inexpensive. And that. That test, even if it, if it had been $1,000 to test her for DPD deficiency prior to administering her chemotherapy, still would have been a cost savings. And that's just one patient. Uh-huh. That's correct.
4: And, you know, I'm happy to report that
3: um, several states
4: in the last year have passed legislation saying that insurers must pay for biomarker testing. And, you um, that includes some pgx markers so uh, you know i believe the tides are turning and um you know that's a, that's a big step that that states the legislators are seeing uh the benefit
1: so more and i'm to- looking <laughs> I was going to say, I'm looking forward to in California as well, right? We, we're we mm-hmm. going to the Senate next. We've already passed the assembly side where pharmacogenomics will be given to our Medi-Cal patients, which are our Medicaid patients for people. Yes. And so I think that would serve a huge example for other states, right? To see if that has some answers into not just some of these conditions, but also into some of the opioid crisis that's happening and to see how that affects and maybe we maybe we learn lessons right i think ucsf is also doing some amazing things with their own pgx department there where they are testing their patients at ucsf and if you have a condition and you are a patient at ucsf you can ask for that testing and they will not bill you as a patient though figure it out on that back end. And so I think when we start to see these things go into place and start to see the benefits that other places and other people are going to gain from them, I think it'll be a fast moving change, or at least I hope so.
4: Oh, absolutely. Anytime we have a precedent upon which others can base their decisions, that, that helps. Anytime that we have a case study or a proof of concept um, with positive outcomes, that's going to help move the needle forward. So that's why those
5: projects, such as what you described,
4: are so critical. So one of the
5: know. effects of oh, excuse me, mm-hmm. one of the effects of the lawsuit that I filed against mm-hmm. OHSU is that it did set somewhat of a precedent. Yes, um, it's been talked about, written about. Um, Quite extensively at this point, and there is a fear of litigation now yeah. among many oncologists and many hospitals because they know um, mm-hmm. certainly that this this is this is definitely cause for litigation if Absolutely. testing isn't done, and um, just the cost alone for the hospital was over, it was almost $500,000 for just about an eight day time period that David was hospitalized compared to a test that might've been $250. Um, And then the cost of the lawsuit and the attorney's fees as well. So I think that's going to further some action on the part of a number of hospitals. We're hearing about it.
4: The state of Hawaii is another example. Um, the state of Hawaii actually uh, sued the manufacturer of um because they uh, showed, and they based it on marketing. Um, they were able to win the case based on marketing. They said that they failed to Disclose the information that they had about um, how patients with certain genotypes, CYP2C19 genotypes, would have poor outcomes or adverse effects from the medication. And so the state of Hawaii, whose population has, um, I don't know if it's a majority of those genotypes are a very high number of those genotypes, they ended up having to pay for the poor outcomes from that medication. You know, they paid for the medication for their, uh, their I was going to say patients, but they don't look at them as patients, for their citizens. Um, and then they had to pay for the costs associated with the bad outcomes. So they were actually able to uh, win a lawsuit as well. Um, based Christine. On Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Becky.
0: That's, That's a hot topic. Hot topic.
1: <laughs> Christine. Christine so I, I was going to add to it and kind of touch on it. Um, my damage is from medications. And people many times over have asked me why I don't sue over it. Right. Um, I, it has completely. I can't, you know, the joint replacements, the brain damage, those things can't come back. Um, but one of the things when people ask me if I, if I want to sue people, I will say I never did. I never took that action because my physicians who treated me, they were like family. Nobody knew how I metabolized these drugs and, you know, me, my doctors, no one. So when we were prescribing them, we were taking a chance, right? We were keeping me alive. And sometimes those were the only options. And so I have to say, as far as like lawsuits, like, I could never bring myself to do it because I care about the physicians who prescribe these drugs to me. But I do look at other countries and I do look at other, um, I was talking to someone in India who, if someone is experiencing damage from medications, they are, they do have to have some kind of restitution. And so for me, it's not asking for like anything other than how do we make people whole again after these these things have taken place you know and how do we how do we kind of take these experiences and then learn from them because I also don't I hate angry advocacy right and I always feel like lawsuits starts brings in a home how they're feeling people and all these different things where where we just for me we didn't know these things at the time now we do and so Now, I think if you don't do something that that you have the capability to do, I think, yes, we should definitely do something there. But I don't know. I always just felt like some of these things we just we don't know. Right. It's still science and we're still learning. And and I can't be angry about these things that have happened my entire life just, you know, because we know things now. And so I don't know. I just would hope that we, we take these experiences from everybody and really learn how to move forward in a way that if we do damage people from medications, how do we make them whole? How do we, you know, how do we give them a quality of life? So I don't know, just my thoughts on it and, and you guys can all say whatever, but I, I just, I loved I my Christine
2: on the On the lawsuit end, I understand, like I can, I can, I can understand your feelings and your thoughts on that, because like you said, you know, they were, you know, you were close with them and, and they weren't educated enough and and they were trying to treat multiple, it sounds like multiple, you know, problems that you were facing. So I totally can respect and understand that. And I've never been one to, you know, be a lawsuit, like, all right, let's go after them or, you know, ever, ever. But I will say, and in, in this particular, from from the front for, you know, the, the specific, enzyme deficiency for the specific drug, right? With the, for the chemo, I have to, I have to, I have to say, I think Joanne, I'm so happy for you that you were able to, you know, drive that and uh, may. I mean, you probably sparked up a lot of awareness there and, you know, no one wanted to hear my story, you know, any lawyer that I talked to because they're like Sloan. Oh, absolutely not. But I will say, I mean, for a specific for cancer and this specific drug and how toxic it is i think everybody should be educated on this um the doctors should know what to look for the nurses should know when the family members are calling and begging for help within a day or two of the right. of the chemo so you know i think it's definitely you know a personal thing for you and i totally understand that you were you were facing multiple you know um issues that you were trying to address and and it sounds like you're you're obviously you know there's a multitude of, of different medications that are standard of care like you said that don't work for you um and that's
1: that's huge and it's that's a whole And by other- no means I- I also want to add, Joanne, good job on the lawsuit, (laughs) because I think those (laughs) things have to set precedence. (laughs) Well,
5: I appreciate the support from both of you, because I am (laughs) not a litigious person at all. But I think if David's doctor had said, oh, my gosh, I am so sorry that he died. I feel so bad we mm. did everything we could and i would have said okay let's work on making changes at this hospital but they mm. denied that that's what he died from when i was doing my research on VistaGuard mm-hmm. the day before he died yeah so i wanted to set an example for that hospital and for other patients and the the money involved was was a non-issue i Mm -hmm. would have i would have settled for a hundred dollars i just wanted them to make the changes which they haven't made yet as of today right i have had no evidence we have been writing sending emails for nine Mm -hmm. months ten months and we've never had a response other than we're working on it that's it um Yes, I'm just that was going to be sort of my justice, getting justice for David, making changes at the hospital where he died. So I haven't had that. So instead, I've turned my attention to the advocacy group and we're making great strides. We've submitted several petitions to the FDA over the last four years to ask for them to change the patient handouts and a whole list of things that we've asked them for, including demanding testing. Of course, they've not come forth with any demands yet. We know that the FDA is not ready to do that, but they did make some significant changes to patient handouts. And so at least they've been improved and the issue is is now addressed. Um, Let's see. We've also, we've done a lot, the advocacy group audit um, and just in terms of getting the word out. um, There's another petition before NCCN right now asking for, among other things, um, adding mandatory testing to the protocols for the treatment of breast cancer. And I think that was just submitted this month. We don't know yet what the results are, if they've honored it if if they've even read it, but the petition is quite extensive. And so that's one opportunity to get through to the NCCN. Once those standards for treating individual cancers are accepted by the NCCN and ASCO, we're we're making huge strides then at eventually having the FDA mandate those protocols to test.
3: And I, I Aaron, think- Yeah, that, go ahead, um, Karen. What's so important about all those things that Joanne just listed that kind of piggybacks on what Christine said is, if you don't know about something, great, we're learning this out together. But they've known about the risk of toxicity and death because of DPD deficiency for 30 years, 30 years. And the National Libraries of Medicine say 1,300 Americans die every year. 1,300. That is a crazy. And uh, we've all heard the news that the incidence of colon cancer is going up with younger people dramatically. So that I can only think that that 1,300 number is going to go up, which is why this importance of making this DPYD testing standard of care before fluoroprimating chemotherapy is huge. And however we can get the word out, you know, it, I mean, it's going it to, has to be the NCCN, ASCO, payers, pharmacists, podcasts like Becky and Benaz, and just talking to people and um, sharing, sharing with people, you know, that you meet like neighbors, like I, we have a neighbor whose daughter's going through breast cancer and it's now metastatic. And it's amazing that people don't know, and I didn't know before, the difference between testing your tumor's DNA and testing your own DNA. Because I say, oh yeah, my my family had genetic testing of their tumor. And I'll say, yeah, yeah, but that's the tumor, right? But the human also has their DNA, which is how you're going to tell also how the medication, how our bodies work. So it's um, there's so much to know out there, and there are hospitals that are testing um, without. They've lost patients, and so they are adding testing. Like Dana Farber, they're they're testing at all of their institutions now: um, Dartmouth, Cleveland Clinic, Intermountain Healthcare, and these are places that are testing before administering this cancer uh, chemotherapy because they've seen what it can do and. Um, I've been working with the University of Washington, and I thought they had kind of put a hold on it, but I just heard that they are moving forward because the oncologist that I talked to has seen how devastating this chemotherapy can be. So um, I think we just need to keep pushing forward in all all of our advocacy lanes, and I applaud all of you for what you're doing. Thank you. Thank you.
0: And Christine, did you have
3: a?
2: Did you want to add to that? Yeah, I'm shocked when you say that they've known about this for 30 years because, you know, when Sloan said um, to me that it could, you know, that they were going to go ahead and test for the DPD deficiency. What alarms me is the doctor said, and if if it comes back, you know, say if we waited that ten days for the results, if it comes back and it shows she's deficient, well, we just won't give the same chemo. we'll do a different one. So what's alarming to me is if they could if they know what the devastating effects are and how quickly um you know it can it can kill the person um why wasn't there any you know why did they drag their feet, you know? And why did they even offer another option when it really wouldn't be,
3: you know? I know it's baffling because they say it's it's rare and an acceptable risk. And um, when you, we're talking about 1,300 deaths in the U.S., like, that's five 737 jets every year. So, I mean, those of us who have lost family members to this rare and acceptable risk are, you know, crushed and just trying to make it so that this doesn't happen to other families. And um, kudos to University of California, San Francisco, who I met um, that that uh, a couple gentlemen, physicians from there at that Precision Medicine World Conference where I met Benaz and that was their Valentine's gift to all of their patients to test them all for 14 or 15 different genes for about 60 different medications like amazing like there are a couple other hospitals that are doing that so it's it's going to happen we just need to keep we need to keep banging the drums
5: yeah, there is a doctor.
1: Oh, go ahead, Joanne. Oh, I'm sorry. There is a
5: doctor, an oncologist at the University of Iowa, who does a cheek swab for $50, and that is not a genetic test, but it's a it's a test that will indicate whether or not there is a an issue. And I wish I could tell you exactly what they are looking for in it, but if they find something positive in this cheek swab, then they'll take the testing to another level and do a full genetic test. But for $50, they can rule out the need to go further into genetic testing for this particular chemo or, you know, for this particular enzyme. So that's remarkable. A $50 test would have saved David's life.
1: I did want to say before anything else, uh Kieran, I was also at the Precision Medicine World Conference and I saw just a portion of your presentation I was moderating another track but I wanted to say I stopped by and I saw you had a slide on your presentation that said what could go wrong and after I walked away from your presentation it was me and another woman she was she was the nurse she worked somewhere else and I was she said why are you walking away and I said well I've got this to do and I said but that presentation hits way too close to home and I said Hearing that and seeing that side of yours, all I could think was one of my friends is going to be giving that exact speech when something happens to me. Oh. And so I wanted to say that your even just that little brief moment that I could hear your story just really touched me. And I'm sorry that I didn't get a chance to go see you after that. I was running around myself, but I wanted you to know that 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 really did touch me and if we can think about things in that way like what could go wrong like people think nothing right but we really do have to think about what can go wrong and how we can fix that we have tools now that can solve some of these issues and we're not using them
3: yeah, so. I think it takes like um, providers. We have a, um, an oncologist on our medical advisory board and he lost a patient, I think it was during his, his residency. And so he is, I mean, he just will test when the new patient comes in and they are doing all these other scans, he's going to do a DPYD test. So if he is going to prescribe a 5-FU or capecitabine, he's going to know in advance and it saves lives. And so I I don't know how we can put a, like a cost factor on that, right? Like, or you ask people, okay, yeah, well, it's a rare and acceptable risk. But if you had your mother, if you were one of the people saying this is rare and acceptable, but if your mom was going to be prescribed that or a family member, would you prescribe that to them? Probably not. So, you know, no. So don't prescribe it to other people. Like, let's do this
1: test. So... It's an acceptable risk for everyone else, right? Yeah. <laughs> yes. Joanne, do you have something
0: to, to add to that before um, oh, I ask you guys just, to kind
5: of give your last? <laughs> right. Oh, um, well, I think we've really done a good job of covering all of the bases. Um, I'm just still dumbfounded that there aren't more hospitals, especially OHSU, Um Either doing testing or at least recommending it or at least um, making it it an issue during the intake process. Um, The word, I think, is going to spread, and I think it's going to spread fairly rapidly within the next year. At least that's my hope. Yeah.
0: Well, thank you guys. I'm going to go around and see if you guys had to, um, you know, because there's a lot lot of individuals listening to the podcast. It could be pharmacists, pharmacy students, it could be um, healthcare providers, it could be organizations or different people that work within a hospital, any kind of discipline. Um, what is the? Well, I guess there's a lot of takeaways, but the one thing you want them to know if they're hearing this message, um, I'm going to go around and start with you, Joanne. What do you want them to know?
5: Well, I want them to be aware of the phenomenally dangerous risk of prescribing fluoropyrimidine chemotherapy if the testing is not done prior to starting that chemo. The test is simple. It's not expensive, and it's life-saving. And they need to be aware. And 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 all of the medical providers, starting with the oncologist, and certainly the oncology nurses, and the emergency room staff, need to be aware. So, thank you, Karen.
3: I would say the same thing. We need to um, make people more. Um, more aware of it in that um, the NCCN they need to change this and and make this standard of care. Somebody said to me or I heard it um, and somebody said, would you go to the um, the eye the store to purchase eyeglasses without getting a prescription to see what you need what what your eyes because your eyes are different than mine? No. So why would we prescribe this medicine now that we have this science? Why would you prescribe this medicine without knowing if that patient can metabolize it?
1: Christine? Sure. I think that we're all on some kind of medication, or we will be at some point, and we don't know how each of those drugs will metabolize in us mm-hmm. individually. And I think. As you move forward and even if you think of the standard of care treatments that you're prescribing to someone, to really think about that individual, how they're different from others, how, how even just their ethnicity could factor into how they metabolize drugs. And so really, I think it's important for us to think about those things because even the standard of care drugs are going to have effects on normal people at some point. And I think we just need to keep sharing our stories.
0: Thank so. you, and Christina.
1: Yeah, I just echo
2: what all of the ladies, um, you know, already mentioned. And like Christine's story is incredible, and I just applaud you so much for. You're so passionate about everything, and you're and you're so happy and positive and bubbly. Um and it's yes, just she's always be, that way I can advocate. I just always for everything that you've gone through though for for all of these years, um, my heart is with you and I'm so sorry that just from that standard care, right? Medication, so you're like the umbrella to our stories, you know. We we're more focused, you know, of course, on you know, the you know, five FU and 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 cancer and um what the effects are but generally speaking right it's it's touching all of us and it there's repercussions potentially devastating repercussions that you know any one of us can face or our children so i just think um you know having the education and the knowledge and learn as much as you can and really just try to keep spreading the word and i'm going to really try to get more involved in the um in the AUDT group because um, life is a little crazy, my family. But um, I really want to get more involved and and really just try to share our stories and make this make some changes. Well, thank you, and I, I want to extend a
0: heartfelt thank you for you guys, amazing brave ladies, for coming out to the show. I know you guys have been sharing your story over and over. So coming and sharing again here, some of you coming back on the podcast, so, and all the work that you guys are doing to make change, uh, to make a difference. Um, I'm so touched by how strong you guys are. And Chris, Christine, like I said, you're always so positive and still pushing through all of you guys and fighting to increase awareness. I'm, I'm really grateful to all of you. And thank you everyone for tuning in. We do a lot of uh, PGXing on here, PGX science, the clinical application, um, the business side of it, and patients. And we hope you learned something today, if, if not a lot. We love to hear from you. So um, we want to hear from you. So let us know. Drop us a line on LinkedIn. Let us know. And share this link with others so they can hear the amazing story of these individuals. Thank you, everybody. Thanks
4: for your interest in PGX and for spending some time with us. Please share this podcast and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. For all of our episodes, please visit PGX4RX.com. That's PGX4RX.com.